Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to episode six of In My Spike podcast with Peter Bowl. In this episode, I am grateful and honored to have Jared Clifford join me, an Australian Paralympian, vision impaired middle distance athlete, and also just happens to be a great friend of mine. Um, I've got to know Jared for the first time in 2018 when we were on a training camp in Flagstaff, um, which was awesome to get to know, to pick his brain. In this episode, we speak about so much. We speak about vulnerability, about trust, um, the Turkish success and his support team and how much impact and influence they have on him, um, the impact of COVID also, and the training and preparation that goes into um, the Paralympics. Also, I get to pick up his brain a little bit on race tactics and his future goals. Just to mention a few of Jarrah's achievements, which include um, three times Paralympic medalist, two times world champion. Um, he holds the Blinky 1500 meter world record and also the marathon world record. So I'm excited for you guys to learn about Jared and also just to to listen to how, how wise and how passionate he is about what he does. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Jared Clifford, thank you so much for giving me your time and welcome to the In My Spikes podcast. How you doing? Nah, thank, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Nah, no worries, man. I've been, I've been following your success and the first thing I got to say, man, congratulations on everything. Congratulations on the Paralympics. Um, you know, I've been watching that and knowing you for so long as well has been so interesting to watch and I'm sure for the whole of Australia, um, it was amazing. First thing is, um, how was the Tokyo experience? Yeah, Tokyo... Um... As you know, it was a different experience. Like uh, I think our kind of village experiences are similar. Like we've both been to Rio and Tokyo, and I remember being told in Rio, oh, like you know, this isn't normal. It's not quite the same as say like a London. Um, but then Tokyo, obviously, because of COVID, was quite different. Uh, and the the Paralympic team, we are uh, got like our own food, so we didn't have to go to the dining hall. Um, so like we were pretty much just in this one building, which honestly made the experience even better because one of the things about our Paralympic team is the unity and the community that we've built. Um, and like that feeling of like teamwork is so strong that I definitely think it feeds our performances. And, um, I just thought that was like one of my best experiences in terms of my performances. Like, you know, I went into the games with dreams of winning a gold medal uh, but you know, they definitely don't hand out gold medals. So, um, and to come home <laughs> with three, three medals, like, I'm, you know, I'm still pinching myself when I think about that. Um, and I think I've learned so much, like as a 22 year old going into Paris three years away, it's going to hold me in a super good place. Yeah. And, um, just speaking about that unity, cause I felt the same way. I thought, do you think it would have been different if, um, if it wasn't COVID? Cause I felt like the team, for my experience was so much closer because I mean, there was, there wasn't much to do. 
everyone had to kind of stay in the building and everyone just got around everyone's event, you know. I don't know if it was Tokyo. It was, I was so new that I didn't get to meet as many people. But uh, I mean, Rio, but Tokyo is just so different. You got to meet everyone from different sports and everyone was kind of together. But that was because of COVID, I think. Um, how, how did you find that? Yeah, I reckon COVID has brought like so many people together because they it's like this one common thing around the world, even though we've experienced it in so many different ways, but it's a common experience that so many, so many people around the world have. Uh, and I know like within our team, um, you know, some of our team sports at the Paralympic Games, they had tough times because they hadn't been able to play together in, you know, a year or two. Uh, and like for them to see each other, it was not just like, oh, yeah, it's great that we get to compete. It's, like, it's great that we can catch up as friends. Uh, and there's people that I would say, you know, are some of my closest friends that I hadn't seen in so long either. Uh, and then I think as well, like COVID brought like us, myself together with so many of my competitors in a way. Like obviously when you're in the race, you want to smash them and try and beat them. But, um, you know, I know one of my competitors, actually the guy that won my 5K, uh, during the really bad lockdown in Spain in 2020, he was training up and down stairs. And like I can totally see sit back after my initial disappointment and go man like they should make a movie about this guy uh like this is yeah. insane. <laughs> and i don't know i'm at the moment i'm seeing some of my you know the guys are one gold being received back home uh and the ceremony's there and i can't help like i'm obviously disappointed i can't i couldn't get one gold but to see like to see their happiness considering what they've also been through with COVID in their countries. Like you can't not be like happy about that. And I think COVID is like a massive reason. Yeah. And also, you know, another thing that it was that COVID board was, you know, everyone was kind of home during the lockdowns. So I feel like Australia just got behind everyone. You know, it was, it was awesome to see how much Australia got behind the Olympics and then, you know, to carry that on to the Paralympics and you're currently in quarantine. So um, are you looking forward to getting back out there at home and, celebrate yeah definitely like um i think quarantine is great because i needed forced rest um like doing my second marathon this year not expecting to do any uh means my body i probably need to be pretty smart with it now but also just man like i left melbourne 12 months ago uh to go train my coach in canberra um and i kind of did that not knowing if i'd be able to get home for, for that this whole year luckily I was but it's still been just a year of kind of you know kind of waiting for Tokyo to be over to get some certainty and stability uh, and I'm like so I'm kind of like so excited now that it's like this new chapter I get to go home see my family my girlfriend like friends from school hopefully be able to hang out with them I haven't had the chance to for so long um, it's just like Tokyo has just been so big for so long like you'd know like I know after Rio, it's particularly I think in the Paralympics, like we have world champs, but they're not they're not really the same level as the Paralympic Games. Um, and like five years, almost my entire teenage life, like it's been gearing up to this, and it was a great experience. But I'm also so excited for this next chapter. Yeah, I actually remember speaking to you um, a while ago when you made that move to go to Canberra, and you were, I think you were in quarantine with a treadmill and stuff like that, and that was probably one of the big sacrifices that you had to move to make and just move to a different city and train over there. Um, I guess my question is, 
you know, how do you even judge whether a sacrifice would be worth it or not? I know in that case, that was worth it. But was that a hard decision to make? Because you had to make it instantly, you know? Yeah, that's a really good question. Like, I had to make it within about two or three days after getting the exemption. I had to just, like, commit. Uh, and it was at a time when Victoria was 700 cases a day, was going up. It didn't seem like borders would open. I don't even think it was vaccinations like like being talked about, or hardly being talked about at that point. So, um, yeah, I was pretty much prepared to be away for 12 months. But I think for me, when I was 12, I went to like a talent search and they said Road to Rio was my thing. And then like two years later, they I went into an AA office and they said that I was like earmarked for Tokyo. I can't remember a day where I wasn't thinking about Tokyo and it's kind of like if I didn't, if I didn't make this sacrifice, like I don't know how I would feel about, um, you know, say I, I fell a little bit short like I like I did, to be honest. Um, if I hadn't made that sacrifice, I might be feeling a lot worse about everything right now. Whereas right now I feel like I kind of left a, pretty much every stone. Um, I turned over every stone in my pursuit. And I think judging sacrifice beforehand is always going to be hard. Um, but I think you've got to trust your gut and trust your instinct because, and sometimes you might be wrong to be honest, but you've got to remember the context of when you made the decision, not you yeah. know, if it does go wrong. No, I love that, man. And then um, I love reading your Twitter. You, you wrote something about um, we couldn't tick the box in Tokyo, but I'll give it everything to do it at Paris. And there was Paralympian tick, world medal tick, world record tick, world champion tick. And then you had the marathon also ticked. Um, and then you still had the Paralympian that goal that wasn't ticked. Um, where does that wanting more of yourself and the drive, the vision, the determination come from? You know, because you've got you've to have all that together. Yeah. Um, I think it's like I, I just don't know a life, my life, without wanting that because, like, I'm 22 I've been in the high performance system for 10 years. Uh, that's nearly half my life. Uh, and, you know, I just, every time I go to a team like that and I'm surrounded by people like, you know, Kurt Fernley, um, Madison DiRosario, Dylan Olcott, um, what, you know, watching like the goalball girls at the Paralympics, like make history by making the knockout stages for me, that nearly drives me on in wanting to make, like have this success. But I've also seen like what, now, I remember what meeting athletes, uh, medals or not, to be honest, uh, that, you know, changed my life. And it's reflecting on that that kind of makes me realize how powerful we actually can be sometimes or how much influence we're having on some people's lives, particularly kids. And it kind of drives me in that regard. But then from a personal perspective, it's nearly like doing my kid's self justice and like, like I like I went into those games with the idea that pressure is a privilege because like my my kid self would have absolutely loved the fact that I was going into a games with um, you know a chance of winning a gold medal uh, and I think it's nearly that drive but also because I'm surrounded by so many people that believe in me uh, coach believes in me like more more than myself like his optimism is insane uh, his belief in me is incredible in the squad. Um, my family, my, my girlfriend for this last year and beyond. Um, but also like my community back home, um, 
my, 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 I mean, my literal community, the people that have watched me grow up and running around the streets of Diamond Valley, but then also like my vision impaired community, my disability community. Um, if I, if I can show at all, like what's possible, which is that if you love something, if you are passionate about something and you work hard, you can do it and apply that lesson to whatever they're passionate about. It doesn't have to be sport. Then I think that's what like gets me up in the morning to train. It's a lot of different reasons, but I think, I think I've nearly hit them all. There has to, there has to be a bigger purpose. I love that. Yeah. And so what happens once you tick that goal, you know, once you, you know, Paris 2024 and an ideal world getting that gold medal, what's next? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, honestly, I was, I'm, I'm almost thinking for my running career, not hitting that gold medal in Tokyo could mean that by the end of my career, I have an even more successful kind of resume of results just because of the lessons I'm going to learn. The fact that I now still have something that I haven't ticked off so that in this next three years, um, I'm still working towards an original goal. Um, and I think because those fundamental goals are so powerful. Uh, for me, like I'm always going to run just because I, it's one of those things in my life where I feel totally uninhibited. Uh, I feel quite like free and liberated and not like shackled by any kind of part of my impairment. And that's why I'll always run. Uh, I'll, I'm going to keep racing at a high level just because I, I can see how much change and power and influence potentially me running well and like giving it everything I've got can have. But I also have dreams, you know, outside of running, like running, you know, right now I'm like kind of stoked that I get to immerse myself in some of my studies. Um, I just got elected on the uh, student council as a disability rep at the uni of Melbourne. And like, I've got so many ideas um, because to be honest, like, Disability interests and rights and advocacy is, I, I find it a thing that kind of is like tick the box, do the bare minimum and move on. It's like slightly dismissed maybe because other than outside the Paralympics, it's not a super glamorous like um, community to work with in the past. Like, I, I, you know, I want to see that changed. And so I think that's actually going to motivate me to continue my running, but it's also going to give me so many other things that I want to do right now. Yeah, and I've I've um, read a lot of your writings and stuff, which you're an amazing writer. And then you also just stated that you study. Uh, how do you then balance all of that together as well as still keeping high performance the number one goal? Yeah, uh, it's, sometimes, it's sometimes hard. Like at the start of this semester, I did one subject, but I didn't do – pretty much any study for like the month leading into the games. Before that, I think it's like really good just for the balance. But in, obviously in that month before you kind of just like got to be in the zone. Uh, and I like at the start of the semester, like I need to sometimes check myself because I'm like, I want to do more than one subject. Like I want to keep progressing my kind of degree. But um, it's, it's really just knowing when to prioritize what. Um, and I think, like, with, with the Paralympic Games, like, we don't have a Diamond League circuit. Um, what, you know, my domestic season is pretty much whatever I want to take from it. Um, and usually my goals are within the able-bodied sphere. Um, so I, I probably have a lot more freedom, nearly, to pick and choose 
um, kind of when I go hard on what. Um, but I just like like having something non-sporting in my life just for balance. And I nearly think it actually aids my high performance in athletics. Yeah, I read something actually pretty interesting. Um, I think it was Kip Chogi talking about he'd prefer that he'd be more physically tired rather than mentally tired. Mm. Um, and there has to be kind of a balance there, which you spoke all about. And another thing you spoke highly about um, just on this podcast now is um, the support of your coach, your girlfriend, your family, and all these several different communities. So personally, I believe so much of my success, I always credit to my to my environment, to my surrounding, and also my support team um, and the culture of my team relationships. So um, let's talk a little bit about that. What what role um, does your coach play? And, you know, how big is your team? You know, because my team, it just gets so big. There's family, then there's also in sport you have. I have Justin as my coach. I have James as my manager. I have Joseph and the Fast Eight Track Club as my training group. You know, how much how much roles do they play in at all? Yeah, I guess that's the, that's the incredible thing about, you know, the people you've kind of mentioned. It's that like, you know, in my experience, they've got a role that's quite specific, but then they've also got, they play like so many other roles too. So like Philo is my coach, but, you know, he's also one of my best mates. He's like um, almost a life coach. He's someone that if... I'm struggling with something off the track would be like totally there in a heartbeat to talk to me about. Uh, and he's almost like another family to me, like hanging out, you know, with Luke and Misha, who you've met his kids. Like um, when I'm yeah, in I remember Canberra, that. yeah, like going to their footy games when I've been in Canberra, like, and <laughs> yeah, it's about feeling like that. And I think running so much more enjoyable when you're surrounded by so many incredible people. And our squad is like, another massive like extended family of people that like I care about so much. And I think when you, when you like are surrounded by people that care so much about each other, um, like you can nearly get that extra couple of percent out in training because you're just in that amazing environment. And my family has played such an incredible role in my life. Um, People with visual impairments are um, severely underemployed and it's, I, like I'm not quite sure on the reason, but I know that like when I was a kid and maybe people were trying to lower my mum's expectations, mum um, and, and definitely dad too was just like, no, nah, we're, not, we're not having that. Um, and so mum kind of taught me all of these strategies um, to kind of cope with my disability and to she, – she told me from the outset it's not about how much – the, uh, how much you can't see it's what you do with that site and um, for me I've just kind of gone well yeah true and I've grown up in this environment where I've never been wrapped up in cotton wool um, and yeah like I'm, I'm not kind of scared of what I what I can't see and like um, in, a, in a literal sense like you know I'll walk into stuff because I'm probably sometimes overconfident you know walking around some places but then also um, I'll totally misinterpret someone's facial expressions because, you know, uh, and therefore their emotion because I can't quite see the definition in their face. And I think if I'm scared of kind of stuffing those things up, then I'm going to be held, I'm going to hold myself back. And, and like mum taught me not to be scared of that stuff and dad too. And like, it's just like having people that believe in you so much like that is just, 
and not like I think like not being wrapped up in cotton wool was one of the most important things um, that that mum and dad did for yeah. me, and like I, lo- I wouldn't I be the person I am today without that. And I love I love the way you speak about um, your mum teaching you some strategies. Um, what key strategies did you find most useful? Yeah, I mean, like the two most like literal ones was when I was a kid before going to school, mum would spend like literally hours in the backyard and then dad too after work uh, just like throwing like tennis balls at me and like uh, like a basketball at me and kind of getting me to kind of adapt how to catch that when my central vision is like not that great um and it does require like i guess i mean i don't really know any different either but like it does probably require different kind of uh you know working of your eyes and whatnot um or like watching people's bodies when they when you know the ball's been like left their body i'm not really sure on all that stuff but the reasoning for that was that at school it's so much easier for whatever reason to make friends if you can participate in sport at lunchtime and recess and so mum made sure that I could, I had kind of had all of this extra time to develop the skills and so that I could make friends and I did. And all my friends, we played sport at lunchtime and stuff. So that was like one of the first things. Um, often with central vision impairment, um, we always do want to see everyone's facial expressions, for instance. But mum kind of, I don't know if she actually ever said this directly to me or anything like that, but I kind of just like, came up with it myself that it's still always best to look someone in the eye, even if it means, you know, you can't really see their face. Uh, and then just trying to like turn my eyes to kind of capture facial expressions, like, but not for the whole conversation. And that's just because yeah. most people don't, most people don't know how to like act, to be honest, when a visually impaired person isn't looking at them the same way a normal an able-bodied person would. And for me, I think that was like quite a big thing to kind of let go that need to see facial expressions. And I kind of said that before as well, but I just think it's been so such a like interesting thing that I developed as a kid with, I don't even know if it was super conscious, conscious, but mum also, I think the biggest lesson was advocacy for myself. Um, whenever she found barriers in primary school to, uh, you know, any participation or any, um, kind of request for technology or the right technology, mum would like have me in the room listening because she knew that once I got to high school, but definitely once I got to uni, uh, into the real big world, I would need to be able to advocate for myself um, and to make sure that people knew what I needed, what help I needed. needed. And um, advocacy skills is like one of the most important things that I think I I have yeah you speak you speak so openly and you speak um with so much power and which is something I really admire about you and also getting to know you and you also speak um so openly about vulnerability and I think um one of the key things you said um that vulnerability affects our ability to trust um I guess my first question is on vulnerability uh do you think it's a weakness or is a strength as a kid, I always thought vulnerability was a weakness. I thought asking for help was a weakness. I thought, uh, I thought that, like 
like not being good at one thing and someone else being better and therefore needing their help was a weakness because I don't know, I feel like that's something we're just kind of taught, not, not, not in a specific lesson, just through life. And uh, I don't know if it was my kind of introduction to the Paralympic movement or where it came from, but like I realized that it's so wrong. Like, um, you know, it's okay not to be okay. Uh, it's uh, definitely okay to ask for help. In fact, I think that's a sign of strength, realizing that two people working together is better than one person working alone or, you know, a whole team of people is even greater. Um, because for me, like through the Paralympics, um, through running, it's like our diversity that makes us stronger and it's our adversity that also makes us stronger and better people. Uh, and it's our lived experiences with, you know, different situations that all bring our diverse perspectives to the table, which then if we work as a team is going to be so much more wholesome and better and better decisions should be made from that, I, I would suspect. And I think, therefore, vulnerability is definitely not a weakness um, because if we define it as a weakness, then we're all weak because everyone faces vulnerability. Everyone has adversity in their lives. Um, they come in, it comes in all shapes and forms. So um, to paint vulnerability with that brush would be to paint humanity as weak, and that's just obviously not true. Um, and I think um, it's kind of like once you accept vulnerability and in the times when you can kind of reflect inwardly and realize that you're vulnerable, um, that's when the strength will come out because that's when we should be, you know, reaching out to our friends. And um, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm just rambling, but that's kind of, that's how, that's kind of no, how mate. I feel. <laughs> no, definitely. And I agree with you on that. And, um, and one of the key things you speak about is trust and, um, I think that has a lot to, um, to do with, with Tim as well, your guide runner. Uh, firstly, you know, um, for the people listening, um, explain the whole guide running um, aspect of it. Yeah. So if you haven't realized already and if you don't know me, um, I'm not totally blind. I'm not, I'm not really even close. There's, there's a big difference between being totally blind and visually impaired. Uh, but that's where I fall into it, visually impaired. And in our categories, we have the choice to run with guides or not. And I do it in certain circumstances, um, depending on the lighting, um, what I've been doing in the week leading up, because I can get like quite bad visual fatigue, um, the distance of the race, uh, the course, uh, so many different factors, how I expect the race to play out, like um, so many different things. And basically when I do opt in for guiding, uh, I love it so much because um, I can pretty much like let go of this hyper concentration that I need in other races, um, which, which is a really exhausting kind of thing to have to do um, in a race. And when I'm with Tim or another guide, I can pretty much let go. So in, a, in the marathon I just did in Tokyo, Tim said for the last 12K for me to close my eyes, and I obviously didn't run the whole last 12K with my eyes closed, but I definitely did in bits just because I was my body was in a different place during that last 12K. And that it's that trust. Like I can't do that. if Like just because I have a guide doesn't mean I'll feel comfortable closing my eyes like that, running like nearly three-minute Ks. Like it's because it's Tim. It's because it's someone I can trust with pretty much anything that I feel comfortable doing that. And people with low vision 
And they're always going to come across situations where, you know, we have to trust. Like crossing a road, uh, I'm often trusting of the person I'm with uh, and that's literally trusting with your life because, you know, if they get the, the decision wrong, we might get hit by a car. And it's learning how to trust that actually will make my life easier. And I think it's true for anyone of any kind of visual ability. Like I think it just goes for everyone that the, the more you can learn to trust, like your life just will get so much easier because you can draw upon so many people in a genuine way. Uh, and yeah, the guiding is like epic. Like we have to be in sync. Um, it looks cool too. Um, but it makes, it does make my life a lot easier in the situations where it's worth doing. Yeah. And you know, that trust is definitely built from the relationship you guys have together as well as the training you guys do together. How, you know, on a weekly basis, how many sessions would you actually do with Tim? Yeah, I was, we were saying this to some of the media after the marathon. Tim and I have trained together since I was 13 uh, down at Diamond Valley. And like, yeah, I'm 22, so it's nearly 10 years. Uh, and in those early, early years, it would have been, you know, two or three times a week. And now it's like in Canberra, it's every day because we've been housemates. But even before that, it was six times a week. Like it, it would be tens of thousands of kilometers. And I was so lucky in Melbourne. Um, you know, where I grew up, it was like not super close to any train station. Like it was a pretty long, long enough walk where it was like a little bit inconvenient. Um, and therefore, I relied on like lifts a lot of the time, even after I, obviously I turned 18 because I, there's no way you want me driving. Um, and I was just lucky that Tim lived five minutes away and that he was also like such a good runner and grew up to be a good runner. Like we didn't know that when we were younger and kind of as our mates kind of fell away from running and it was just kind of us two from the original group. Uh, yeah, he just, there was one period where he would run before work at like 4am. He'd go to work. He'd come straight from work to my house in the afternoon and he's an electrician. So tough day at work. He'd pick me up. Yeah. We'd go to training. Like he'd probably drop me in training. Uh, and then he'd go home and like go to bed. And um, the like, you know, he, he does it for himself too, but so much as well, like the picking me up, like the amount of, and he doesn't, he, he doesn't accept like petrol money. I have to like, I have to like shout him beers or like food, like when, <laughs> when he's not expecting it. Like he's just such a good yeah. person. <laughs> what a man. What a man. <laughs> And, um, you know, I read, I remember reading an Instagram post where I think that week you actually, or the week before you ran a 10K or something, and then you went to pace the marathon, and then you actually decided to finish the marathon and break and break a world record. Like, where does that come from? Like, I would never put yeah. my hands up to pace a marathon. <laughs> yeah, well, I got thrown. Like, this is, the, this is the crazy story of why I have a third medal, basically. It's like, yeah, did, did nationals the week before. Uh, did all right, nearly made the final. Um, and I made the final the year before, so I was kind of keen on that, but missed out. Uh, did uni nationals. Um, did a 400 in like 51 or 52, which for me is not bad. That's um, not bad. That's moving. <laughs> it, was like, it, was like, it was like half an hour after a 15 too, so I'll take that. Um, yeah. And then uh, run the 10. Off the like, like, No, nah, it was a relay, so maybe it's a bit... It's probably a bit dodge. <laughs> it still counts. <laughs> yeah, I'm claiming it. I'm claiming it. But uh, then I did like run the 10, hard lap of, 
you know, 3.8K around 10 on the Saturday. And then we, me and my mate flew to Sydney that night, uh, got in real late. Uh, and I was kind of there as a late last minute pacer due to some injuries elsewhere. And I was like, I remember sitting on my bed at 4am going, all right, I need to like bury myself to get to halfway for Rogues, my training partner. Like, um, cause I hadn't done any long work or my last long run, like above half marathon distance was like January. Uh, and this is April and I don't know. I don't know how, I still don't really know how I did it. I actually don't understand how I managed to run a marathon like that more so having done my second one now and re- realizing that day was just like something crazy. Like I, I just, I kind of just kept going. Um, it never really got that hard. And then I stopped for 30 seconds at 36 K just cause I was like, like be stupid for me to finish this marathon. <laughs> um, and I was, by then I was tired. Uh, and then Philo just ran over and he's like, by that stage, he was like convinced I was going to finish. Um, and then he's like, Oh, if you want to like finish, like you've got my permission basically. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> what so um yeah got our finished two hours 19 and i i actually the the long like the more running i've done since then the more i can't explain it it's just it was just <laughs> one of those days where it clicked <laughs> how much how much time did you have to take off after that oh well that was the thing like when i finished i'm like oh no like i feel like i feel like i could be in trouble from a few people here um we're not super far out <laughs> from tokyo and i just ran a mile and like i don't know how my body's going to respond and philo was like yeah you're gonna have to take three days off and then for like oh, 10 days or a week you just got to like run at the pace of the slowest or like slower people in the group and if if you saw me a step ahead of him i'd have to take like a week off fully if you saw me like trying to beat him so um I stuck to that, but I did a session within two weeks at altitude in Perisher, pretty strong, like 20 minute threshold at a pretty good pace. And I don't know, like my body just seemed to recover from it. Um, I nearly think maybe because I didn't have the marathon prep beforehand, um, yeah. which can be like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I still can't explain it. That's insane. That's insane. And um, for me, I only run basically 800 um, some one fifteen hundred a year, and I think we've raced each other a few times. Uh, and I average basically about fifty to sixty k's a week. But you range from fifteens um, to five k marathon. Uh, how many how many kilometers a week would you cover? Do you even calculate that? Yeah, I calculate it mainly. I don't like chase k's though. Like whatever the program kind of lands me on is what it lands me on. Um, but. I think in like base period, it would be 130 to 140 um, with some weeks up to 150. But I, like, I don't say that number just because it's pretty infrequent. Uh, and then like in summer, like leading up to that marathon, for instance, like throughout the whole summer, I'm barely hitting 100. Like I probably just hit 100 some, some weeks. And that's just mainly because a lot of the sessions are lower volume, like it's very speed based. And then um, like we're often tapering. Like I raced a heap in this summer. So yeah, probably 100 Ks during track season yeah and how much is your training um outside of that includes strength and conditioning or like pilates and other or cross training do you do any extra stuff um i probably should do more than i do to be honest um i found it quite difficult with the whole covid thing to use the vis but they gave me like some equipment at home so that was handy but um 
Yeah, I probably definitely don't do as much gym work as, say, an 800 runner or um, even, like, a pure 1,500-meter runner. Uh, but, like, cross-training, I do enjoy swimming and stuff. But then, I found, yeah, COVID kind of stuffed that around a little bit. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Mainly running, to be honest. Mainly running, yeah. And then the mental part of it, because I think the mental part plays a big part. And one of one of the ideas I actually like to discuss is, you know, I always found it hard to, you know, close the balance between competition and training. I I tried to work out that if I could close that balance between making training exactly the same as competition, then I wouldn't be as nervous at competition and stuff. Do you feel like when you're training and competition is the same thing or do you tend to get nervous for competition? Because I worked out like, man, I'm still running at the end of the day. Or when I'm racing in like Tokyo, I, I said to myself, look, I'm still going to run 800 meters. I ran it through Australia the whole the whole year. What type of mentality do you carry on? Yeah, I think it's like quite similar. It's, you know, I don't, I don't think I, I would say that I put like my training on the same level as competition all the time just because I, I personally might find that like exhausting. But... But like I reckon once a week, once every fortnight will be like a session where I kind of go into it like, you know, with a lot more like intensity to kind of hit what I want to hit. And I think that does help. But also like the Psych 101 stuff that I kind of take with me is like one, control the controllables on race day and, you know, race week, particularly when you're in a village during COVID, you just kind of got to go with the flow. And then, uh, like, process, uh, not outcome-driven on the start line. Because, like, I already know, like, on those, those start lines in Tokyo that I want to win the gold medal. But thinking about that doesn't help anyone. Like, I've just got to, like, realise, as you said, that I'm about to run, you know, 5K. I've done that heaps of times. Uh, I just got to do it again and... Um, execute my plan and whatever the result, like the result, it'll take care of itself. And, you know, that's kind of why, like, if I knew I executed my plans right and I, because I knew I was in the best shape that I'd ever been in, it was kind of like, if someone beats me, it's probably because, like, they're better than me, um, at least on that day. And um, I think psychologically that gave me a lot of freedom to not tense up, um, and because I, I think you would know like tensing up is in running is like a pretty like it's a thing you want to avoid um, particularly in those majors where it's so easy yeah. to yeah and then in tactics talking tactics uh, for me I run 800 meters so for me my best races is when I literally didn't have to think you know every move that I wanted to make I just made it automatic because if you think trying to make a move it's already too late but you're running those a little bit longer distances. Um, what's the tactics like? Yeah. Tactics are an interesting one. Like I, to be honest, have been really tactically good uh, traditionally. Just like I've won some races that I've probably not been the best athlete on the day. Uh, and, in, and that includes world champs. And I know in Australia, particularly the running community, people kind of read my story, hear my stats and go, oh, this guy's like, almost a shoe in for, for like certain results at, at a games or something like that. But in, in Dubai, like 
I won by 0.1 of a second. And if you watch the race, you'll realize I pretty much won that through tactics. Um, and there's a good chance that guy was actually uh, a better 1,500-meter runner uh, generally at the time. Uh, and I think that's why tactics is so critical because it can literally change a result. And to be completely open about it, my 5,000 meters in Tokyo, which was my best chance of winning, um, it was super hot and that definitely played a massive impact. I think it was like feels like 43 degrees. But tactically, um, oh, I guess it's still tactics, but like tactically I actually played it really well. But I, I kept kind of clipping the guy in front of me, which is probably a sign that I was fatiguing uh, visually through the heat. But I should have kind of known that that was going to waste my energy. Um, and I was also, in terms of those races where you don't think and everything happens without you even realizing how it happened. It didn't quite happen for me that day because I was, I probably wasn't in the zone as much as I should have been. Um, I thought I was on the start line, but I kind of got to 3K and I was like, I remember having the thought, uh, oh, this race is like being set up like really well for me. And I think nearly at that moment was when I started to tense up a little bit and start hitting that guy, wasting energy um, and not panicking, or anything like that, but just like, you know, oh shit, like this is like, this is my race to lose right now. Uh, and yeah, that's not really what you need to be thinking with two Ks to go no. in the heat. And <laughs> yeah. I don't know, like I, that thought just hit my brain. Like, I don't even know. It didn't, I wasn't like searching for it. It just kind of happened. And I like that, that guy, I don't want to take away from that guy. Cause I think that guy had me on that day. He was just stronger, better in the heat, particularly, um, but that definitely, I think, is one of the reasons why my last lap um, was still sub-60, but, it, you know, it wasn't what I wanted it to be. Yeah. And um, how much does nutrition play into your preparation? Yeah. Uh, I guess it's always played, like, a big role. Like, mum, as, as a kid, mum definitely, um, you know, linked a lot of foods to, say, things like visual fatigue um, and just, like, having a healthier diet. Uh, is definitely a way uh, that's going to keep you happy and good, but also like visually, uh, it can it can uh, ensure like visually you're healthy. Um, so mum's kind of always instilled like smash veggies, smash fruit, um, just like be super healthy. I've been vegetarian for two and a half year, two and a half years, um, which I do remember uh, a lot of people kind of thinking kind of like nearly the end of the world when I told them um, in terms of a high performance sense. But uh, I think it's like one of those things you just have to make sure you're kind of covering all bases. And I'm not vegan. I feel like for me that would be a lot harder. Um, but, yeah, so I guess that's like a – it's not super unique but a somewhat like unique uh, nutrition outlook. But, yeah, I think, I, I think it goes all right. Um, do you ever get – too nervous about if you're eating too much or too little before a race because that's always running through my mind sometimes uh, or a better question would be would you prefer to be hungry or kind of full before a race yeah yeah I don't know I hate I hate being hungry on the start line but I've definitely still run well feeling like that um yeah yeah I think I think like I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I do. I do get a bit worried about. 
I think for like the track races, sometimes I'm not like the marathon. I felt so like bloated because I actually like carb loaded for it properly, like this, like in Tokyo. And it's like, it's a weird feeling compared to the track. Like I think some of my best sessions have actually been where I'm hungry. So maybe I need to kind of try that. <laughs> Cause like sometimes I just rocked up to training kind of a bit rushed and haven't yeah. prepared as probably, but then it's like, maybe, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it, that hungry feeling is like nearly makes you like push. What's the latest push. meal you would have? Because I'd have, I'd have my biggest meal four hours before a race. And then I have like a snack two hours before a race and then maybe like a banana an hour before I kind of start yeah. warming up. Yeah, I'm pretty similar. Like banana an hour before uh, and four hours for the meal. Like that's the same for me. Um, and then, yeah, kind of snacking on like I'd probably get some like toast or something, toast and honey. Um, yeah. Yeah, pretty – I kind of keep it – particularly the longer we longer I get to, I'll try and keep it like pretty basic food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then recovery is obviously key. I I would get maybe a massage once a week and then physio once a week as well. Um, what's your recovery plans? Yeah, so I was also lucky enough to have those um those compression boots. Normatec. Yeah, last 12 months. And that was yeah. mainly just because like for me, traveling into the VIS from where I live is like a bit of a hassle um, public transport-wise. Like it's not super direct. Uh, and so like that was handy uh, for me. And then in Canberra, like I was within like, K or two from from the services and that was handy and then on teams as well um you know our physio Dane Verway and then our like masseuse um Jess from Canberra like they're they're people that it's good to work with people that really get to know your body and know when it's uh when it's feeling a little bit off and they can pick up on it even when you like I might not be able to um so yeah it's definitely important and I've always tried to stay pretty flexible I've I've got I've had a routine that's um i've kind of been doing since i was a kid um and that's just because for me as well like my my main issue in physio is my back uh and my neck and that's probably because even though everything on my screens and stuff are enlarged uh, i still have to bring it really close to my face and even though sometimes i try to make sure i'm bringing it to me often i'm bringing myself to the screen Um, particularly when I'm typing or something and because of that bad posture like my back is usually what plays up and um so that's my main physio thing that I have to deal with uh and it's so which like is kind of not not that bad yeah and then just while we on that recovery and this can be one of the final questions is I mean you're in quarantine right now how much how much time would you take after a major championship so like it's off season now obviously um, are you running in quarantine? Uh, you do have a treadmill or a bike, or are you just taking completely time off? And for how yeah, long? I th- yeah, I think um, you know, for me, having done a marathon, it makes it a lot easier to kind of feel like I'm able to take two weeks off. I don't know how I'd feel. Maybe I'd be keen on doing a bit more running, but I also think how I treat these games is probably different to how I, I I would treat like a world champs. Um, and that's mainly just because I think because of the extra year as well, um, mentally, I just need this two weeks of forced rest of no running. Um, but because like running gives me so much from a social perspective, as soon as I get home, I'm going to be going on heaps of runs with different people just to catch up. Um, so 
I'll be back out there pretty soon. Um, structured training pretty soon. Um, but yeah, I'm just doing absolutely nothing in quarantine and I think my body needs it and my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And mate, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. Um, congratulations again on everything. You're an unbelievable human and, you know, I'm so proud of you as a friend and, you know, having the opportunity to get to know you. So it's been great. And I look forward to actually getting out and having some runs with you. I know that you guys run pretty fast. So <laughs> I remember doing a session with you. I remember doing a session with you at Princess Park when I first got back from a session. You guys just absolutely dropped me. <laughs> um, yeah, and that but... was kind of around Princess Park. So <laughs> yeah, so I, gotta, I look forward I to having those um, easy runs. <laughs> yeah, you got to come yeah. back around Princess Park and you know just yeah, easy for sure. session. For sure, nothing no, too hard. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> no, you're a champion, man. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 